0: Welcome to the December 2006 www.IanAbernetti.com podcast. In this month's podcast, the keys to understanding CATA. Welcome to the latest IanAbernetti.com podcast and as you've just heard we have a new piece of uh, title music this month Um, and again that was provided by Colin Scott of of Nightshift Music and I'm very grateful to Colin for that uh, powerful introduction. Uh, This month we're going to be discussing some of the the keys to understanding the physical movements of kata, uh, the language of kata if you like, so we can understand the combative message that the kata is trying to to convey. The first key uh, to understanding cutter is to know that cutter applications are designed to end a the confrontation there and then. So, any application that would leave the opponent able to uh, continue a fight is incorrect. Now, there's two essential ways in which the cutter uh, gets you into this, this position where the, the fight is effectively over. Uh, and one is it just completely incapacitates the opponent, so it, it's kind of knocked them out cold, you know. Uh, the second one is that it's just put you in a position where the opponent is effectively at your mercy because you have a massive advantage. So, uh, as an example, you'll see throwing techniques in kata. So once the opponent is on the ground, if you're still standing up, then obviously you're in a, you've are you got a, a great uh, advantage over the opponent. Um, so the kata, at the very least, leaves you in a position where you have a massive advantage. Now, all kata movements will do three things. Uh, they will create advantage. They will maintain advantage, and they will exploit advantage. So, uh, not a, um, the fighting techniques of the kata. Isn't reactive? It's very proactive and very preemptive. And once an advantage has been gained, it will press the advantage until the fight is concluded. Um, so, any kata interpretation which would allow the opponent back into the game um, is incorrect. The second key to understanding kata is to know that all parts of a movement are significant. Um, Hands are not placed on the hips or wound up before a movement as uh, a preparation for the following technique. Uh, No movement is without purpose and a good application must take every single part of the movement into consideration. Uh, Now in particular the uh, application of uh, hikate or the pulling hand, the hand that's on the hip, that must also be considered. Um, In Gichin Funakoshi's 1925 book Renten Goshin Karate Jitsu, um, there's a short paragraph devoted to the use of hikite, and he writes that uh, the meaning of hikate or, or pulling hand is to grab the opponent's uh, hand and pull it whilst twisting as much as possible so that the body of the opponent is forced to lean against the defender. So it would seem that the true meaning of hikate is to control the opponent's limbs such that the opponent becomes unbalanced. Um, and that's one of the key uh, key functions of uh, the, 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 the non-striking hand. If you look at any striking technique in kata Whilst one hand is obviously hitting, the other hand will be doing one of two things. And one, as we've just discussed, is to control the opponent's limbs and clear obstructions. If you were to strike the opponent, um, get a punch into the face, it's quite common that they'll fling their arms up in order to protect their head. So in order to press your advantage, you need to remove that obstruction. Uh, Just pull the arm out of the way or press it out of the way. Uh, The other use of the non-striking hand is uh, setting datums so by grabbing the clothing, grabbing the arms, grabbing the head, putting a hand on the side of the face something that gives you a tactile location of where the opponent is um, live fighting is so messy and scrappy it can be hard to land accurate shots but if you're lucky enough to get that datum set uh, you can, you'll can you strike accurately now on the seminars I often teach some, some drills where people discover that uh, striking using a datum with their eyes shut is actually more accurate than striking uh, without using a datum and their eyes open so in Kata, if we're looking at the strikes, we'll have the striking hand and the other hand will either be setting a datum or clearing obstructions. Uh, now uh, Motobu in his writings uh, warned against uh, never having a dead hand or a air. both hands are always active. The third key to understanding Kata is to know that every Kata move is designed for use in combat. Um, now. We're often told that certain movements are to strengthen the legs or improve balance and although certain moves may increase strength and improve balance that's not the primary function. The primary function of any kind of movement is always to disable the opponent in combat. Now if I work out on a bag and you know do ten two minute rounds that will make me fitter but the purpose wasn't to make me fitter. Um, I got fitter through practicing combative techniques. So while the Kata may indeed improve balance and make you stronger, you're using combative techniques to do that, so every single movement's primary function is just disable an opponent in combat. Uh, the fourth um, key is to understand that the angles at which the techniques have been performed in the Kata are important. Now if you've got two people training together and you're performing a technique at 45 degrees, that's that's easily recorded, simply because you've got two people, which means you've got two points, you've got two points, you've got a line and you can record an angle. Uh, when you're reenacting those um, combative techniques on your own, you don't have the second person by which to define the angle. So the only thing you can do is to use your previous position or the mbsen of the cutter, uh, the centre line of the cutter. So this is what we, we we find in cutter that the angles that you're at are indicative of the angle that you need to be in relation to your opponent when that technique's being applied. Um, now mabuni i think it was mabuni wrote that uh, the eight angles of the cutter don't mean the opponents attacking you from eight angles so you know the information is 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 there for us so um, most fights as well they don't just start they're normally preceded by some kind of uh, heated verbal exchange you know um people swearing and shouting in front of one another or trying to intimidate you know so only a fool wouldn't turn to face the assailant before kind of blows were exchanged or it got physical um, if you didn't, and the opponent was at an angle to you, then your awareness isn't what it should be, and you're probably going to be taken out of the fight before you even know you're in it. Um, if you are aware that there's a threat coming, and obviously we hope that you are, then you should turn to face the opponent. So the vast majority of cat techniques have the opponent in front of you. There are some that deal with an opponent who's slipped behind you, but that's obviously a kind of an in-fight thing where the opponent's move round. Um, so that the main reason that cutter techniques are performed at angles is to instruct the practitioner that they need to be at the angle in relation to the opponent in order for the te- technique to work. Or that by moving in the angle, the transfer of body weight will aid the technique's execution. So it's important that you consider the, uh, the meaning of the angle when looking at uh, the, the cutter, uh, cutter application. Uh, the fifth uh, concept is to know that the stances are, v- are a vital component of the uh, the techniques. Uh, stances are never assumed because they look nice, for the strength and legs or to improve balance. Uh, stances are taken because they put body weight into the technique and uh, they help unbalance the opponent. Um, so there's two ways in which we use stance really. One is as uh, the transfer of weight. And while we're discussing this, it's important to understand that the damage is done to the opponent during the movement into the stance. Um, so for example, if I'm lunging forwards, I've pulled the opponent's arm down, I'm lunging forwards, I've got their arm out of the way, I throw all my weight into a strong uh, strong punching technique, like it's an oizuki or a, a junzuki technique, that the damage is done, the impact is made as my body's moving into the stance. Uh, I don't move into the stance and then punch, which is a common misunderstanding because people ask, well, why would your back leg be straight when you you, you punch? The answer is your back leg isn't straight when you punch. Um, The back leg straightens as you're punching, so you're pushing your weight forwards into the shot. Um, The stance represents the end of the technique when the body weight has been shifted. So um, that's one way in which stance is used, it, it aids the shift of your body weight, it's kind of like a snapshot of where your body needs to be at that point in time. Um, the other one is that the end position of the stance, uh, your leg position, can be used to uh, disadvantage the opponent in some way. The sixth key is to understand that real fights are sloppy affairs and the way that application is performed in reality will obviously reflect this. So when performing the cutter, we are practicing the ideal movement, uh, which is relatively easy to achieve uh, against the thin air, but it's another matter entirely against another human being who is intent on doing you, you some harm. So when applying the cutter's techniques, your main concern should be the movement's effectiveness, not retaining inch-perfect performance. So what's a graceful movement when performed in the cutter, will become a bit rough round the edges when applied in an all-out situation. Um, and this shouldn't be a concern. The visual appearance of the technique must never be a concern. The only valid measure is whether or not the technique disabled the opponent. So while although we may not retain kind of inch-perfect performance, we will always adhere to the concepts and principles of the cutter. Um, but an application isn't immediately rendered invalid because your, your back foot was a few degrees out or your stance was a few inches short. Um, again, it's whether or not you disabled the opponent that's key. The seventh key to understanding kata is to make sure that you always consider the likelihood of the situation that the kata movement is addressing. Uh, the majority of, of kata techniques deal with uh, likely situations in uh, a self-defense uh, scenario. Um, we're not talking about fighting a, um, a trained opponent in a, in, a, in, a, in a ring or in a, a kind of square-go kind of situation. Now a big discussion on the nature of real fighting is something that we may keep for uh, for future podcasts but there are significant differences uh, in the way that you would fight an uh, another martial artist in the dojo or in the ring or you would fight someone in the in the street. Now when I mention this to people uh, sometimes I say well what if your opponent is a, a trained martial artist? Um, it, it still won't be like it is in in the in, in ring or a dojo, it just doesn't just work that way and there's an evidence for that, just look at, the, um, I mean there's enough of them that have happened, you look at a boxing match, um, the pre-press before a boxing match, where two, uh, two boxers um, kind of like kick off, lose the temp with one another and start fighting, it never looks anything like a boxing match because it's closer, it's faster, it's more aggressive, it's more frantic, it's more emotional Um, So things like um, moving around the fancy footwork, the moving in and out of range, the uh, um, give and take of a a, a sport situation or a dojo match, you just won't see that in a live fight. Um, So in kata, the fact that you don't see those those foot movements is because the kata is not designed for addressing a ring match. Now there's no reason why we can't take the techniques of the kata and expand on them. There's also no reason why we can't study other areas of the martial arts. I mean, I enjoy the, uh, the, the gameplay of, of fighting with another martial artist. And it is part of my study, but it's not real fighting, nor is it part of your kata and it is important that you, uh, you understand that. Uh, the eighth key to understanding kata is to know that strikes should be delivered to the weak points in the body. Now, there should be no doubt that uh, technique delivered to an opponent's weak point will have a greater effect than techniques that are not. Um, and you should also be, always be as specific as possible with regards to the area being struck when you're studying your, your bunk eye. Um, but that said, uh, you should also bear in mind that the accurate placement of, in, of strikes in an all-out fight is nowhere near as simple as as uh, some would have you believe, and the key is to be able to hit really hard. Then, no matter where you strike, then you are going to do some uh, some damage. So the cutter does record uh, the weak points that we should be aiming for, but it's not central to the strategy of the uh, the cutter, um, simply because in a, in a live fight it's just really really difficult to to hit accurately. Um, the ninth key to understanding kata is that no cutter techniques should rely upon unpredictable responses from the opponent. Um, However, predictable responses should be acknowledged. Now it's quite common to see uh, applications that uh, require the opponent, uh, if you can call them that, to perform a specific uh, set of karate techniques. So for example, it's at this point when the opponent responds with a back fist and I'll block it with, you know, whatever. Um, Now that's not the way Kata works, because there's no reason why the opponent should uh, respond in that way. Uh, And hence this type of application should be um, avoided. So a favourite saying of mine when I'm teaching is that uh, cutter applications aren't something you do with a partner, they're something you do to an opponent that don't require the compliance of the, of the opponent. Uh, now some responses are predictable and as a result, often are taken into consideration by the cutter. So for example, if you apply certain arm locks, the opponent will move in a certain way. Uh, as we've discussed earlier, if you punch a guy, he's likely to bring his arms up to protect his head. Um, if you kick someone in the testicles, are likely to bend forward from the waist. So a- any cata um, motion is likely to um, acknowledge this and similar um, involuntary actions. The tenth key to understanding cata is to know that there can be many effective applications for any given movement. Now in some cases, you know, you look at a certain move and there is just one application for it and there is only one way that it can be applied. Uh, in other cases we have uh, movements that are fairly generic and can be applied in a number of, uh, of different ways. And to me that's an effective way of training. What it means is that you've got one physical movement that you can apply in uh, lots of different situations. Um, it also means there'll be some variation as to regards how certain movements should be applied and that that's fine. Um, if your applications are different from what uh, somebody else has shown you, it doesn't automatically mean there's anything wrong with yours or theirs. If the the work, and are consistent with the principles we've talked about in this podcast, then uh, I think you can view your application as being, uh, being correct. Uh, Mastery Tosu, who had a huge influence on the way Kata is now practiced, uh, once wrote that there are many movements in karate. When you're trained, you must try to understand the aim of the movement and its application. You have to take into account all possible meanings and applications of the move. Each move can have many applications. So I think it is important that we we do look at uh, if there's uh, different ways in which we can apply the uh, the same movement because I've just said I think that's an efficient way to train. Uh, there will be some movements where they only have one uh, use and one application, but we will have movements that we can use generically. Um, so we have to be careful that we don't discount things um, by having you know got one application for a particular movement or having taught one that we believe that's all there is to the move. Often movements have a bit more uh, depth than that. The eleventh key. Um, is that we need to uh, endeavor to understand the principles upon which the techniques are based. Um, so the key thing is to get to why techniques work and try and get beyond the simple memorizing of individual techniques and endeavor to fully understand the principles of combat upon which the cat motion is based. Uh, principles are far more in t- important than techniques. Uh, principles can be applied in an infinite number of ways but techniques are perspe- uh, specific and hence quite, uh, quite limited. You um, should aim to be an adaptable and versatile fighter, and if you endeavour to fully understand the principles and learn how to fight in accordance with them, then that's, that's what you'll be. So if we concentrate on the principles and the various ways in which they can be applied, the cata becomes a an inexhaustible supply of martial knowledge, and it's possible to appreciate why the masters of old said it would take more than a lifetime to understand um, a single um, So. Again, that's very important, is always looking at the principles. Why does the movement work, and what is the movement trying to show me? Um, and then, of course, you can ad- adapt and vary that movement in, all, in accordance with the, uh, the underlying principles. And we've touched on some of these in this podcast. We've talked about obstruction, removal, and datum setting, and their principles. You don't have to necessarily do it in the exact same way shown uh, by the cutter. And the twelfth, and for the purposes of this podcast, the final key to understanding kata is that all applications must be workable in real situations. Um, So when you're looking at the CATA, ask yourself uh, the following questions. Um, Could this application be applied under stress? Is it simple to use or does it require too high a skill level? Um, Is the application truly practical or am I settling for the first application I was taught or I came across that seemed to fit the kata? Is the technique for use against violent untrained attacks or predetermined karate techniques. Um all cut applications should be relatively simple to use because they were designed that way. They need to be that way to be effective. It may seem a tad obvious to say that all applications have got to be workable in real situations. Um but I think what's a less common commodity is is people aren't quite sure what makes a technique workable in real situations. Um and that may be something we'll discuss in um in, in future future podcasts. Uh, But one of the best tests of that is is Cater-based sparring, uh, which again we covered in depth in uh, last month's podcast and can also be found on the the blog of uh, www.ianabernethy.com So that about uh, brings us to the end of this month's podcast and I hope there's been some uh, useful bits of information in there which you can take away and apply to your own training. If you'd like some more information on uh, the the language of Cater, then I would refer you to my uh, Bunkai Jitsu book, uh, Bunkai Jitsu, The Practical Application of Karate Kata. As that book's a kind of user manual for kata and discusses in depth some of the the issues we've been discussing in uh, in this month's podcast. Uh, As always, I'd welcome any feedback you'd care to give, so if you'd like to get in touch, please feel free to drop me a line at... Uh, Ian, spelled I-A-I-N, that's the Scottish way of spelling it. Ian at ianabernethy dot Abernethy being spelled A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed this month's podcast, and I'll uh, I'll see you again soon. Okay, thanks very much. Bye bye now.